0: Hi, this is Jay Gilbert. And this is Mike Etchart. And you're listening to the Your Morning Coffee podcast. It's the weekly music news for the new music business. From Billboard Magazine, five takeaways from RIAA's 2021 report. Big business, bigger growth, biggest vinyl shipments.
1: From Music Tomorrow, a complete guide to Spotify recommendation algorithms. And for
0: music business worldwide, TikTok just launched its own music distribution platform, SoundCloud on. Jay and I will cover all of these stories and more, so kick back and relax, because here we go with the latest episode of the Your Morning Coffee podcast, right about... Mm, now.
2: Stand by for transmission. This is London Coffee. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. 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 On the From our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart.
0: Well, Jay, it's so good to see you on what is a Saturday morning. Ah, It's a beautiful day. It is a beautiful day. And, you know, we haven't talked about music documentaries lately, but I don't. Th- mm. I don't think I've mentioned this yet. But I've watched finally the Sparks documentary on the band Sparks. How was it? it? Is fantastic. Even if, and I wouldn't say that I'm a big Sparks fan. Um, I'm an admirer of Sparks. You know, they've been around for fifty years almost, and uh, I think they have twenty four albums. It is the the most entertaining documentary. Very, very well put together and creatively and
1: oh, it's a great documentary. It's well worth the time. Really good reviews, heard really good things about it. And I'm not particularly a huge sparks fan. I don't dislike them, but I just, you know, I'm just not. Um, But as you and I have talked about before, we'll watch documentaries on any band. I just love seeing how the sausage (laughs) is made and, Uh you know, how those relationships happen and how the, you know, The career progresses. Um I I will look forward to seeing that. Yeah, it's really, really good. And um, you know, if nothing else, it's
0: really um it talks a lot about their their creativity and their ability to just kind of completely shape shift and you know head in a different direction. And they've been on a number of different labels, and it's it's kind of a, a real testament to just stick to itiveness, you know, a band that yeah. just keeps going. And they've they've modified how they now operate, and it shows them at um, at uh, Russell's house, the singer, uh, how they write music now, and how you know they they have basically two little big desk set up with, with uh, yeah. digital audio workstations and it shows them creating music and how they do it now and how they used to do it and it's it's really a yeah. like I said a testament to and how, how artists are, are able to remain creative and just keep working just keep doing
1: it and whatever happens happens and it's really well, that's lovely. a theme with a lot of successful uh, artists that have longevity mm-hmm. and that is that they continue to not only innovate but reinvent themselves. Yes. Um, and there are people, obvious ones, you know, like David Bowie and Madonna and Lady Gaga. And I mean, there's so many of them that they don't look the same each year. Their albums, you know, look at the Beatles. They just grow from album to album. And there's a, a I think there's that running theme of, if you're going to be in this business a long time, you need to reinvent yourself. And it sounds like that's what the Sparks thing is a little bit about.
0: Absolutely. And one of the more interesting things in the documentary is, um, I guess I it was about five or six years ago. They, At the time, they had maybe 21 or 22 albums. And uh, their manager, I think and I think their manager regretted it after, I think it was as she said it. Um, you know, let's do a, a run. And it was in London where where we play for 21 nights in a row, and each night we play one of the albums all the way through. And so they had to learn, relearn all of their, I think it was 21 That's albums crazy. at the time. crazy. It was, and they wow. talk about how they kind of agreed to do it, and they're like, what were we thinking? And, you know, I think they, they talked to the bass player, or somebody saying, yeah, he's like, yeah, you know, you learn the first album, go, okay, good. And then you go to the second album, you learn that. And they they rehearsed for like,
1: three months to get everything down i can't even imagine that yeah and and you know because we hear about that all the time with rock bands right you know where they'll they'll play one album during an anniversary tour in its entirety and i recently had the pleasure of watching one of my clients do that and there'll be an announcement uh, coming soon about it but re-recording a classic album in its entirety the thing is and (laughs) you understand this some of those songs they don't even remember, like they never really played them. And then years and years later, they go back and they have to really learn it as though it's a brand new song.
0: Exactly. And of course, if you're, you know, a guitar player, how did, how did I get that guitar sound? You know, it's, it's like, it's really difficult to do that stuff or it can be difficult, but it, but that's hard enough when you go back and do a single classic album. Again, these guys did 21 albums. That's crazy. it's it was it's so anyway so highly recommended it's freaking great it's a it's a lovely doc whether all you're right. a fan or not and if you haven't heard yeah. of them all the more reason to check them out so very interesting I will do and fun it. excellent yes indeed and by the way the guy that I get to talk to, talk music about every week is none other than Jay Gilbert he is the co-founder of music marketing and strategy company Label Logic he is the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter with which we read every week and of course that informs the podcast and a former executive with universal sony and
1: warner music groups yeah and i get to share the uh, microphone with mike etchart uh longtime host of sound and vision radio formerly of sst records warner music capital emi and universal music always had trouble holding jobs as you can tell from that particular (laughs) thing you know over many
0: many years you know it's all good (laughs) Hey, it is what it is. And of course, we are, have wonderful sponsors, Jay. And without the sponsors, we could not pull this off. So we are so appreciative yes, of the folks that help us do just that, including the Music Business Association. The four-day Music Biz 2022 conference agenda has just been announced, taking place May 9th through 12th at the JW Marriott in Nashville, along with yeah. returning favorites like the Metadata Summit, Hashtag, Next Gen Now DSP Workshops and Brand Summit. Jay's got his shirt on, I can see. He's, he's waving it at me in my screen. Um, just to name a few, you'll find timely new additions for the 2022, including conversations on NFTs, gaming and immersive music experiences, catalog acquisitions, and much more. Jay Gilbert will be there. And yes, he's buying drinks, man. He is buying drinks. So if you see wait, him, wait, what? he's <laughs> got a credit card
1: that's got no limit. So uh, Oh, dear yeah, Lord. Have, have him buy you Where's the mute drinks. button? Where's that new button? Uh, your morning coffee podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle, built by musicians for musicians. Bandzoogle is an all-in-one platform, makes it easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music, and it really is. I I just finished a new site that I built with Banzoogle. It's drag and drop, super easy. Um, highly recommend uh, people take a look at it at the platform. It's awesome. All the features you need for a professional website, everything's built in. Hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, social media integrations and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. And when I say musician-friendly, a lot of them are in bands, you know, a lot of yes. them still play live, so they yes, are definitely musician-friendly. Uh, your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com and try it for free. Uh, you can try it for free for 30 days. Just use the promo code coffee, all one word, and that'll get you 15% off your first year of any subscription. That's Banzoogle.com, promo, cor- <laughs> promo code coffee.
0: And <laughs> we're also sponsored by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are
1: published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Yes, Bands in Town. Over 65 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist services platform connecting over 550,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Uh, Music Business Association, Banzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town. Big thanks to all, because we certainly appreciate their participation. Yeah, and I forgot to mention, Mike, um, there's a new um, Bands in Town artist community um, that I just joined. Mm -hmm. It's super cool. Um, If you're not uh, into it or haven't seen it yet, check it out. It's um, uh, at community.artist.bandsintown.com, or you can just Google Bands in Town artist community. Um, But check that out. Super cool.
0: Awesome. All righty. Well, Jay, let us jump into the show today. And I I will tell you, um, there's a, there's one article in particular that is very, very dense. And so I'm going to need your help because you are such a data maven. Um, and, uh, I'm not. <laughs> so when we get to the uh, episode, the the second story, uh, buckle in, folks, because there's a lot of right. fantastic information. But boy, it is it is kind of dense. So we'll break it down, right? We'll break it down we'll and simplify it,
1: down. it. You know, yes. it's you know, yeah. We'll try not to okay. use so much jargon in it. There you go. So the first uh, story is from Billboard. Five takeaways
0: from the RIAA's 2021 report: big business, bigger growth, biggest vinyl shipments, and as always a fantastic breakdown of what's going on in the business and where we are and comparing it to the biggest year ever in the history of the music business back in 1999. And that's great. Again, as you and I were talking before before we hit record, um, the way the RIAA breaks this down is so um, user-friendly and helpful. It's great.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's such a great report and this is Billboard's kind of uh, recap or synopsis of that mm-hmm. report, but there's also a link in the first sentence to the report, the year-end report from the RIAA, which if you don't know is the Recording Industry Association of America. And these reports, you know, as we were talking about offline uh, Mike, they're, they're just so well done and so there's they're very visual, really nice charts and graphs where you can tell at a glance what's going on, but Billboard um, really broke it down into what is important. But as we kind of jump into this report, this is uh, 2021 US. So, United States recorded music revenue. It's not the global IFPI thing. This is just US. And the revenue grew 23% year over year to $15 billion. That is mind blowing, uh, that type of increase. And of course, a lot of it was, well, we'll talk about what drove it. But these levels exceed the previous record, which was like fourteen point six billion in nineteen ninety nine. But here's here's kind of the caveat: is that if you adjust for inflation, twenty twenty one is actually thirty seven percent below that value level. So yeah. even though the dollar amount is higher, the actual number adjusted for inflation is lower. But it's still impressive.
0: You know what I was thinking too, and and I don't. I, th- I think you and I have talked about this briefly, but you know when you're thinking about profitability of a company. So let's let's take Universal for for instance, sure. because we both used to work there, <clears throat> whatever their profit is right now. When you and I were there, and I don't know, I don't really know the answer, but I, it got me thinking. Okay, so so let's let's say revenues. Are, still aren't as high as that, but what about their fixed costs? And my sort of theory is that Universal's fixed costs have dropped dramatically. First of all, I 100%. think there's far far less people that work for music companies. When you take out the manufacturing of physical product in the in in the day, so Universal and all the majors used to own their own physical plants, shipping, all of these things that used to be just kind of a component of the company's infrastructure,
1: right? That stuff's not there anymore. No, and a lot of things that people don't think about, like you just mentioned, you know, shipping and those facilities, but there are also storage fees. There are also Mm -hmm. um, obsolescent inventory that has to be taken care of, moved, destroyed. There's so many different layers of that onion, but you're absolutely right. The, the point that I want to drive home that you just made, which is spot on, is that there's a lot less people working for these music companies, number one. Their distribution costs are a lot less when you're uh, delivering primarily, you know, 83% of the business is streaming when you're, you know, you've already built that infrastructure. Now... That's not to say that there aren't any fixed costs. There certainly are, you know, um, business affairs, you know, the legal department, you know, the marketing and what they they don't call it sales and marketing so much anymore. It's really called commerce generation and things like that. You still need a team and there's still people who are, you know, on so many different levels, but just not at the levels when you and I were there. Yeah, exactly. So that is
0: another thing to consider you know when we talk about profitability of these companies, and and again, I've never seen anybody really tell me like so. In two thousand and five, this many people it were employed in the major label systems. Um, to say nothing, actually, of the old distribution offices that that remember we they were well staffed and had a branches. Remember, branches, each yes. each
1: market had a branch office.
0: Absolutely, and I don't know what they have now. To be honest, is is there. <laughs>
1: Do they still have branch offices or do they have far fewer, I would assume? They're very few. And really, if you remember back in the day, that was actually Henry Droz, who was at WEA and then later ran Universal. Um, and I had the pleasure of uh, working for Henry. Um, he was the one who really designed that uh, branch distribution system. And then finally, every major adopted it. And so you had all these you know, designated marketing areas, DMAs. Uh, A lot of them had uh, these branches and they had sales and marketing and everything in these local branches and they would take care of all of those local um, record store chains, for example, or one stops. And as the the account base uh, contracted, so did these branches. Yes. And and you know, just
0: to put a historical perspective for folks that weren't around when Jay and I were around, you know, what made a major label a major label was that they had their own distribution network set up and that started around 1970 if I'm not mistaken. Prior to that, the majors, what we now know are the majors, Atlantic and Warner's and all those companies, they used independent distributors and they wanted to take over their own distribution and control that and so they started the their own distribution networks, hence major labels. But uh, yeah, all that stuff is yeah. gone. <laughs> so let's break down it. The, you know, the the uh, one of the things that was uh, called out in this is ad supported on demand streaming roars back in the 2020 report. Ad supported and on demand streaming took a noticeable hidden growth, both in absolute terms and by percentage. Um, but uh, in reality, however, the growth up sixteen. Uh, 16.8% over in 2029 wasn't too out of line with the levels 2 years prior to that but uh it is it is cranking out and, and again we it is when you look at uh, all of YouTube TikTok Facebook Spotify all of that sort of ads and Spotify's ad supported tier it's big business it is big business Yeah and- it
1: is but I would I would only counter that with it 76% of streaming revenue is from paid mm-hmm. um Subscribers, not from the ad supported. And that's the area of the business that we'd like to see continue uh, to grow um, like it has been. You know, revenue from paid subscriptions is, you know, by far the largest share in it. That grew 23% year over year to $9.5 billion. So that's that's kind of the big uh, beast. And it also, it's it's important to point out that 2021 marks the sixth consecutive year of growth uh, for the recording industry. Sixth consecutive year.
0: Yeah, that is pretty impressive. Now, and you know, but the the in terms of an ad supported tier in yours in your universe. Um, you know, because I, I I do teaching in high school, and it, I always kind of at the beginning of any school year, I talk to them and say, hey, "How do you how do you listen to music?" You know what what yeah. to get just kind of get a feel for like high school kids how are they listening to it, and it's still I'm always impressed by how many people do the free Spotify. You know that is such a yeah a, I'm an seeing the opposite
1: though. Really? Yeah, I'm. I'm. Yeah, I'm seeing the opposite. I speak at a lot of colleges. Mm-hmm. Um, four in particular that I do pretty much every quarter, and and just like you, that's one of the first questions that I ask. And back a few years ago, it was all YouTube, and then with some of these discounted yeah. um, Spotify, Apple Music, some of these where they have student. Uh, subscriptions that are low cost i've seen that evolve and over the last like 18 months or so almost everybody that is in those classes at least at the college level are paying for a subscription it's really interesting and maybe on the high school level that makes a little bit more sense you know that they don't have a credit card or they don't have Yeah. yeah the the means to do that but i i ask that same question i think it's super interesting
0: and it's probably different. Yeah. Like you said, because, because if you're a college student, yeah, you, you have opportunities to get a discounted thing and you're sort of out of the house now. So a lot of kids though, in my experience, and a lot of that is demographics as well. You know, if it's uh, yeah. lower income folks that, that, just don't have the money and they're not having their parents pay for it. They, they they slip over to that. Um, Hey, we, we've talked about vinyl, a ton and the amount of vinyl units shipped exploded. There is no surprise there. Um, the RIAA report says that the format passed the $1 billion revenue mark for the first time (laughs) since 1986. Wow. And the, 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 the writer for this article mentioned that he was only born in 1989. Um, but he says, but another story that has also rightfully been, uh, Covered extensively of late uh, has been the pandemic-fueled supply chain issues that have contributed and not entirely caused but contributed to vinyl pressing plant delays and industry-wide frustration at the lead times required to get vinyl pressed and shipped in the past
1: year or so. So we've talked about that a yeah. ton. It's, yeah, as you've, you've pointed out that those numbers would be higher yeah. if those problems weren't in place, right?
0: And and I will say this again, I did not see this coming. I I didn't see I, I not that I didn't see the the interest in vinyl coming, but the numbers that we're talking about now, I did not see. But of course, you're also looking at the you know, when what was the last retail price for an album back when it was, you know, call it in 1990? Fourteen bucks. Well, you know, it's dramatically more expensive, of course, to buy vinyl.
1: It's a premium product, uh, product. as they say, and people. Well, and it's there. Actually, a lot of them are on 180 gram vinyl. A lot of them are on colored vinyl. There's these variants. The packaging is is deluxe. So, to be fair, it's not. Um, you're not comparing apples to apples uh, in that regard. Um, but yeah, um, for the first time since 1996, both CDs and vinyl records uh, experienced revenue growth in the same year. Now, the big elephant in the room is still, you know, it's still streaming. And they have a chart in here that shows, that, you know, a pie chart that it's 83% streaming, mm-hmm. 11% physical digital downloads, which is on the decline, which we'll talk about in a second, and then 2% sync licensing. And I had a couple of friends comment on LinkedIn um, when I posted this that, you know, that sync number seemed really low, but... Even at two percent, that's three hundred million dollars. That's not nothing. <laughs>
0: that's not nothing. You're, yeah. but I think, and you and I talked about this before we hit record as well. And and, but you know, I was just saying, given how how much production has grown in terms of film and television, that you would think that, I, or I, I, could see that number being a higher percentage. But again, you're still talking about a lot of money. And of course, there's also the publishing side when it comes to sync licensing that's not covered yeah. in, in this. Yeah. And so and, that's that's. And the other thing I would double.
1: add. Yeah, the other thing I would add to that is let's keep in mind this is U.S. only. Mm-hmm. Um, so Indeed. if you look at the other report, the IFPI, we'll take a look and see what Sync is globally. Um, but really, the the big gener- uh, revenue generator, as we all know, is streaming, and that that also includes a wide range of formats, not just the obvious, you know, streaming from Apple Music or Spotify or Amazon or whatever. You know, it includes paid subscriptions, ad supported. Um, digital and customized radio and licenses for music on Facebook and Peloton and some of those things. So, and this year for the first time, it includes TikTok music. So when you combine all of those revenues, um, it grew 24% year over year. And like I said, it accounted for about 83% of total revenues, which is pretty similar uh, to 2020.
0: Yeah. I, w- I want to jump back to the to, uh, the vinyl numbers, too. One of the things just jumped out at me. Um, vinyl shipments this last year grew 67% over what the year previous to almost 40 million
1: units, which is far 67%. Exe- wow. Oh, stunning,
0: stunning numbers. And, and, and
1: again, I'll, I'll, I'll just say it again. What, what you, you've always said is that could have even been larger had yep. we had the production in place that, uh, to meet the demand. Yes. So it is a, uh, a robust year, uh, at the end of the yeah, day. The only and- negative in this whole report was, and it's not that big of a deal was that digital downloads, uh, were down. Of course they are, you know, revenues from, you know, digital downloads were the only major category that declined in 2021. And that was down 12%. But here's the number that I thought was surprising even though it was down 12% and it continues to decline every year it was still 587 million dollars in the US alone for digital downloads to me that is absolutely amazing like i didn't realize it was still even though you know we're looking at such a small part of that pie that pie chart what did i say it is 4% you know but that's that's crazy that it's a b- people a are number. still buying that many digital downloads.
0: Yeah, and I find myself doing that periodically. You know, for for a lot of radio production things where I need the physical file. You know, it's
1: it's Me and we, you
0: and you and I have also spoken about how it's kind of hard to buy digital downloads, at least on Apple's website. It's like or on on, on uh, Apple Music. It's like oh, this is not as easy as it used to be. <laughs> but yeah. You know whatever it is. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, you just you know big big numbers. Uh, but, it, it, but one of the takeaways, of course, is you know when you're comparing uh, numbers from numbers in the past, you do have to count in inflation. And uh, so we're not quite still at those 1999 numbers, but we're heading yeah. in a great direction, and lots of people are making lots of money. So there you yeah, go. there was
1: one accompanying article that I put with that um billboard piece and it's from Music Business Worldwide and the headline was with 15 billion in revenue 2021 was the biggest ever in all caps biggest ever year for the US record industry and then in parentheses kind of kind of and so yes. <laughs> yeah it was as that dollar amount but as we pointed out you know with inflation it it wasn't quite but it's still uh, doesn't dampen the enthusiasm. Uh, the music industry over the last five six years has definitely turned around. Yes, indeed. So let's jump over
0: to uh, article number two. It's from Music Tomorrow, and boy, this one is a dense one. So we're gonna we, we we're gonna we're gonna get through it. But but it for me anyway, it certainly took a lot to get my head around this. So this is a complete guide to Spotify recommendation algorithms. And I I know this isn't, this is a a sandbox you play in every day, but boy, oh boy, oh boy, there's a lot to know. And it's, but it is fascinating on the things that they collect information wise and how
1: they parse that out to recommendations. It is
0: unreal. It really is unreal.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of misinformation about the algorithm because you speak with people and everybody seems to think they know. What's in the algorithm? Well, you know, skips are bad. Ads to personal libraries are good. You know, there's some things that make a lot of sense. But what I love are these articles and we've reported on a few of these where people actually go out and they find videos of Spotify engineers or staffers and they listen to what they're saying is in the algorithm. Mm-hmm. They um, they do searches and find stories that were written again with Spotify employees talking about what is actually uh, in the uh, algorithm, and it changes. It you know it it is evolving and changing. And what I love about this piece, it was by um, Music Tomorrow, which I had never really. Um, gone onto their site before. it's And it's such a great deep dive for those that really want to know what's in Spotify's recommend, uh, recommendation algorithms. It was written by Dmitry Pastukov. Pato- uh, Hopefully I'm pr- pronouncing that correctly. And we're not going to go through, I mean, it's like you said, it's such a dense deep dive into all of the kind of mathematics and strategies underneath some of these algorithms. But there are a few areas that we can talk about that um are a little higher level but you don't really need to know uh about their matrix as much as you need to know you know that you know back in 2020 as much as 62 percent of consumers you know uh across all platforms like spotify and youtube they rated them as that like their top source of music discovery and that's important here and that's where the algorithm i think is so valuable you know with release radar and discover weekly and radio spotify for instance you know over one third of all new artist discoveries happen through what I just described, and they call them "made for you" recommendation sessions. Um, so, and I'm finding that true um, with a lot of our artists. I think I told you last week that across about 25 artists right now, um, a little under 30 percent of their Spotify plays are coming from these personalized or algorithmic playlists, like Discover Weekly and Release Radar. So, let's let's dig into to why this is important and what's in, um, the recommendation and discovery. And before we do, um, a couple of fun facts. One is there are, you know, about 70 million tracks on Spotify. Um, there's this number being bounced around, um, that there's 60, 70,000 tracks uploaded every day. And I was speaking to an analyst last week and who said that number is not correct. And we're going to talk this week and get into why that number is not correct, um, but I'll be really interested, and we'll report on it next yeah. week. But you see it across the board, everywhere. Hours. Um, Music Business Worldwide reported last February that it was sixty thousand tracks, and um, this analyst is telling me that it's probably closer to half that. So, oh, we'll get okay. we'll get the facts for everybody, right. and yeah. so stay you know tune in next week. But anyway, seventy million tracks in aggregate over 400 million users worldwide, and almost half of that is paid. So, you know, um, we're talking about the Spotify algorithm. So that's that's a massive audience. And this kind of surprised me. There's over 4 billion playlists available to Spotify if you add up Spotify curated, user curated. So that'll kind of set the stage for what you and I are going to talk about next.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, th- this when we talk about... Our entry into the music business—how th- this is—we were always trying to get people to listen to new artists, right? And it was—and—and and we, we used to talk about, you know, the 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 kid in high school that was always the one who knew about music and would share that information with his friends, those those key people. And again, and that was a not, not thought that was easy, but it was a fairly simple process that you understood in your head. <laughs> it's like okay we want to get to these taste makers okay and then they will in turn kind of amplify out that interest as you're as you're doing artist development well now we have this ai stuff that that is involved <laughs> with spotify and it's not easy jay it is very complex and very dense but it is fascinating on how they they set up their algorithms and and how they understanding music and user tastes and what they do to kind of their secret sauce to get it out there. And I mean, you've, you, you you shared with me a deck that you have created and, and how, how much it's been revised over the years. And, you know, we're, we're talking now, we have a history of give it, call it a decade, a little bit more probably, but, you know, and, and these, these algorithms completely change and it's not an insignificant task to just keep up with it. Right. And, and I don't know how you do
1: that. It's just paying attention and reading, right? Well, I'm just basically reading what some really smart people are saying and then just keeping a uh, running deck so we can optimize uh, for Spotify and other DSPs. Because that's what we tell people all the time. You're not going to game the system. Um, I was speaking with a friend of mine, um, uh, Chris Proudy, who runs a company called Nine Twice. And they're really good at like a lot of things, but one thing um, was SEO, search engine optimization. And he said something to the effect of, you know, they've got 200 highly trained engineers over at Google. You're not going to fake them out for long with, with your little trick. And it's the same with Spotify and and these DSPs. And so let's, let's dig into a little bit of how this, you know, their algorithm works. So um, in a lot of ways, Spotify's recommendation engine, you know, it's dealing with a similar flow as TikTok's for you algorithm, you know, that was reported on the last couple of weeks, you know, so it's playing the matchmaker between the creators, the artists and the fans, you know, on a two sided marketplace. So uh, opposed to TikTok, you know, in this case, we don't have the courtesy of leaked internal documentations you know, like we had. Uh, what we do have is the company's extensive um, public research and development records, its API, and some common sense. So a healthy chunk of Spotify's recommendation approach has been widely publicized. So you and I can kind of dig into some of those things next.
0: Well, and I want to just go uh, circle back to something you said, which is so much of this. Uh, if you're an artist, or if you're representing an artist, is optimization. You know, how do you optimize? And so much of this is is uh, is data. You know, it's like inputting the correct data, and that's crucial. And you know, don't don't spend so much time trying to game the system. Just optimize for the system. And that is a, a full-time gig no matter what. So uh, let's let's jump in behind the algorithm, understanding music and user tastes. And they talk about here content-based and collaborative filtering. Now that is a right. big word, Jay. Mm-hmm. And that is Spotify's approach to track representation is made up of two primary components. Mm-hmm. Content based filtering aiming to describe the track by examining the content itself and collaborative filtering aiming to describe the track in its connection yeah. with other tracks on the platform by
1: studying user generated assets. That's yeah, really wild how they do that. Yeah. And it's, and look, we don't have to get too deep into the minutia of the filtering and some of these things. Um, But really the thing you need to understand what they're talking about is, for example, when you submit something to Spotify, you fill out a a submission form and it's you don't have the choice of choosing um, the exact genre. You have there's a drop down and you have to choose from one of their. uh, So they have 22 genres um, that they list and you have to pick from one of their 22 genres. Um, And but you, you can only pick one of them. Then, but they have subgenre. So there's 12 of those, and you can pick up to three of their subgenres. Then they have things like um, uh, music cultures. And under music cultures, they have, you can pick two of them. They have 14 of them uh, that you can pick from. They have Mm -hmm. eight moods, and you can choose up to two of those. Um, They have five song styles, and you can choose two of those. And then there's 35 instruments. Listed some of which I had never heard of before, and you can choose um, the all, any of those that are on uh, your particular song, and that to your point earlier is so important um, for their personalization, or as some people call it, their algorithm. You know, and it starts off with you know what city do you identify with, and describe the song for us, and you know, all of these different things will help uh, these quote unquote algorithms to get it in front of listeners who would appreciate it. Yeah, fascinating.
0: One of the things that really surprised me is also, um, they they have a, a, a thing listed here, is analyzing raw audio signals. So they actually just take the file, And it says, the audio features data available through Spotify API consists of 12 metrics describing the sonic characteristics of the track. It says Spotify generates at least three perceptual high-level features designated to reflect how the track sounds like in a more holistic way. So some of the things they look at is danceability, which is describing how, how suitable a track is for dancing based on a combination of musical elements, including tempo, rhythm stability, beat strength, and overall regularity. They have a co- uh, something called energy that represents a perceptual measure of intensity and activity based on the track's dynamic range, perceived loudness, timbre, onset rate, and general en- entropy. <laughs> I don't know, I'm not sure what the general entropy means, but again, they're looking at... At the the, the the dynamic range and the, the elements of that actual file and something they call valence, which is describing the musical positiveness of the track. Generally speaking, tracks with high valence sound more positive, e.g., happy, cheerful, euphoric, while songs with low valence sound more negative, sad, depressed, angry, valence. I was not familiar with that phrase, Jay, <laughs> to be yeah, honest. I,
1: I, I started thinking of walking on sunshine when you started talking about Um, But these are, you know, part of those 12 audio features, you know, that they are looking at. And that date dates back to 2013. You know, Mm -hmm. it was part of, you may remember the Echo Nest, you know, um, and they acquired Echo Nest in in 2014. So one of the research papers published by Spotify um, last year states that the audio features are passed into uh, the model. This is crazy as a 42 dimensional vector. Now we're not going to get into the uh, minutia on that, but basically they talk about how they analyze these files, the audio files and use all that, uh, metadata that I just went over on the Spotify submission form and they call it natural language processing models, but it's not that difficult. Um, and I'd love for you to walk us through, you know, the the three points of that they list as those natural language processing models. And again, it yeah. sounds super complicated, but it's really not.
0: Yeah, so they've got lyrics analysis. So the primary goal here is to establish the prominent themes and the general meaning of the song's lyrics while also scanning for potential clues that might be useful down the road, such as locations, brands, or people mentioned throughout the text. They've also got uh, web-crawled data, which focus primarily on music blogs and online music outlets. uh, Running NLP models against web-crawled data allows Spotify to uncover how people and gatekeepers describe music online by analyzing the terms and adjectives that have Hmm. the most co-occurrence with the song's title or the artist's name. And then we've got user-generated playlists. The NLP ag- algorithm runs against the user-generated playlist featuring the track on Spotify to uncover additional insights into the song's mood, style, and genre. If the song appears on a lot of playlists with "sad" <laughs> in the title, it's a sad song.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, my head is already makes spinning. Jay. No, it um, makes
1: sense. And and the one you you. Just touched on that. I want to add just a fine point to is, they're looking for adjectives like you know yes. in a pitchfork review or you know online comments when people describe your music, and I think that's really smart um, because that's going to help inform their decisions about where it should go.
0: Yeah. And so when we say NLP, just so you know, that's the natural language processing, Uh, the, the NLP models allow Spotify to tap into the track's cultural context and expand on the sonic analysis of how the song sounds with a social dimension of how the song is perceived. Of course, if your head isn't spinning by, by now, then then you're awesome and you're going to get hired by Spotify. Um, the three components outlined above, artist source metadata, audio analysis, and NLP models, make up the content-based approach of the track representation within Spotify's recommendation system. Yet there's one more key ingredient to Spotify's recipe for track representation, yeah. Jay, and I will yeah. let you handle that. Well,
1: well, yeah, that's a collaborative filtering. And again, a lot of these things sound so... You know, important and high tech and, you know, confusing, but it's really at its core, it's pretty simple. You know, in many ways, collaborative filtering, you know, has become synonymous with Spotify's recommendation engine. You know, the DSP giant um, has pioneered the application of this so called quote unquote Netflix approach, right? Um, we can understand songs to recommend to a user by looking at what other users with similar tastes are listening to. And that's collaborative filtering. So it's not super complicated. It's just they're looking at, you know, you and I may have similar musical tastes. And if I'm listening to this new Tears for Fears album, you know, they may recommend it to you because it just kind of makes sense, right? So, They put in this article, you know, that sounds like the silver bullet for music recommendation, doesn't it? You know, so in recent years, Spotify has actually moved away from consumption based filtering or at least drastically downplayed its role in track representation. Instead, the current version of collaborative filtering focuses on the track's organizational similarity, meaning, you know, two songs are similar if a user puts them in the same playlist, like I just described. You know, um, if I'm listening to similar music as you, um, and I listen to something that I think is interesting and I, I play it a lot, it may recommend it to you. Now magnify that by 400 million users and you've got yeah. a real powerful tool. And how much of this stuff does
0: a label, do, do, in your experience, how, how, are major labels really parsing through all this information that that as they are releasing Uh, music uh, to Spotify. I mean, are they, is anybody in the building really doing this deep of a dive on all this stuff?
1: Well, I think they definitely know what's going on so they can optimize for it. But I, I think from my friends at the majors, what I'm hearing is that they run into some of the same problems that the indies do. And that is just the sheer volume of music um, that's released every week is it's they have to prioritize by genre and mood each week. They have to call, you know. uh, They're they have to be very careful about what their priorities are, and then you know there are different rules for the one percent, and there always have been, and always will be. You know, if you're Billie Eilish or you know whoever. You're, you're standing on the shoulders of giants and your company owns a piece of Spotify, for example. You have weekly meetings with Spotify. You may get them early music or get them into the studio to see some recording being done. You may, you know, we, we talked about this last week in a how they take artists around to radio stations to shake hands and sign autographs and do performances and things like that. They're, they're still... Uh, a challenge with the limited amount of shelf space. Um, But the the majors definitely, gosh, I think I have a percentage around here somewhere about what they control typically each week, but it's a lot. And so, yeah, uh, are the majors looking at some of this minutiae day-to-day No, I don't think so, but I do think that they have people on staff that know this inside and out and are optimizing for it.
0: There you go. Gotcha. Uh, One of the last things mentioned in the article is generating user taste profiles, which Mm. is another thing that is fascinating. Essentially, the recommendation engine logs all of the user's listening activity split into separate context-rich listening sessions. For instance, if the user engages with Spotify's What's New tab, The primary goal of the listening session is also to quickly explore music recently added to the platform. In that context, high skip rates are to be expected as the user's primary goal is to skim through the feed and save some of the content uh, served for later, which means that a a track skip shouldn't be interpreted as a definite negative signal. On the other hand, if the user skips a track when listening to a deep focus playlist designed to be consumed in the background, that skip is a much stronger sign
1: of user dissatisfaction. Hmm. Yeah. That important. Th- that That is really important. Uh, all skips are not created equal. Um, That's right. I, I notice sometimes if we get into the first or second position on some of these popular playlists, the skip rates are a little bit higher because the audience is more engaged at that moment than any other time. They're getting ready to work out their commute cook dinner whatever they're about to do they're so engaged they hit play and they're like nope uh, nope okay I'm, I'm good to go so that isn't to be interpreted as a huge negative uh, skip rate so you know generally speaking that user feedback can be split into two primary categories explicit or active feedback you know library saves playlist ads shares skips click through to artist album page um, Artist follows and quote unquote downstream plays. That's group number one. And number two, implicit or passive feedback, listening session length, track playthrough, and repeat listens. That's really important because, as you and I talk about a lot, if we like a track, we'll listen to it 10, 12 times in a row. Yes. You know, like in a that's, row.
0: I don't know if that's normal, but I know that that's what you do and that's what I do. So I'm going to assume it's semi-normal. It says, in the case of Spotify recommendation system, explicit feedback weighs in more when developing user profiles. Music is often enjoyed as off-screen content, meaning that uninterrupted consumption doesn't always relate to enjoyment, then user feedback data is processed to develop the user profile defined in terms of most played and preferred songs and artists, save songs and albums and followed artists, genre, mood, style and era preferences, popularity and, diverse pref- and diversity preferences, temporal patterns, J, temporal patterns, demographic and geolocation profile.
1: Wow, my head. What's a temporal?
0: What, what's a temporal pattern? I ordered
1: that when I was having sushi the other night. <laughs> it was it was absolutely it's, it's, delicious. It's a, it's a delicacy. It is. So look, there's a there's a lot in this article, and we're just going to skim over one other quick section before moving on. But there's a lot to be taken from this about how you can optimize for for Spotify. I highly encourage you to. This is one of those you print out and kind of highlight. Um, it is a deep dive and it's not for everyone, but there are some things that no matter what level you're at, you're going to appreciate. And the last kind of section I want to talk about is uh, recommending music, you know, integrating user and, and track. You know, the, the recommendation landscape for Spotify is much more diverse than some of the other consumption platforms. They, they put in here, you know, just consider the range of Spotify features that are generated with the help of the recommendation engine. And there are nine of them. Discover Weekly and Release Radar Playlists. We talked about that a little bit. Your Daily Mix, another one of those personalized playlists. Super important. Artist, Decade, Mood, Genre Mix Playlists. Number four, Special Personalized Playlists. You know, uh, your time capsule, On Repeat, Repeat, Rewind. I love those playlists a bunch. Uh, Number five, um, Personalized Editorial Playlists. Number six, Personalized Browse. And by the way, when we say personalized, you've seen these where it's a... Spotify a curated playlist, but even if Mike and I are looking at the exact same playlist, it doesn't have the exact same songs in it. It's really personalized for our individual listening uh, behavior. Um, personalized search results, playlist suggestions, and enhanced playlist feature. And the last one is artist song radio and autoplay features. So it goes deeper uh, in this article, and if you're into that stuff, you know, these vector spaces and processing language and all of these interesting things, by all means, dig in. But even if you just want to see kind of uh, some of the things that Spotify is saying that they look for or search on for their algorithm, fantastic uh, article um, from Music Tomorrow.
2: Yeah,
0: man, it's it is dense, but it's fascinating, and you know, as as I will, one of my things you say many things that I that I are worth repeating, Jay. But one of them is, you know, optimization. You've got to focus on optimization for whatever the format is or whatever the the distri- distributor is, um, and that's where your time should be spent. Don't try to game the system. Optimize for the system, and. And all will will take care of itself from there. Yep. So our last article, Jay, because uh, there's not enough uh, music distribution platforms, this is from Murray Stassen, by the way, in Music Business Worldwide, Uh, TikTok is officially a music distributor now. How about that? The ByteDance-owned viral video app has just launched its own promotion and music distribution platform called SoundOn. It happens to be already live in the UK, US, Brazil, and Indonesia, and lets artists upload their music directly to tiktok and resso um yeah. it can also distribute their music to other platforms like spotify apple music and instagram so uh thoughts
1: on this i'm not sure why they're delving into this but why well, not? well i i love it uh, i think it's absolutely amazing um uh you know their um their global head of music um uh, oberman said in short we're making it easier for independent artists to get their music on TikTok, and we're going to work with them to much better understand how to reach their audiences on TikTok. So, but here's the thing that jumped out at me: TikTok says that SoundOn pays out 100% royalties to yes. music creators in the first year and 90% after that, and provides a range of promotional tools and support. Um, I went to their the, the SoundOn website and just kind of checked it out. And it says that same thing. Uh, Receive 100% of your royalties, get paid monthly, maintain 100% ownership of your music, no admin fees. So, excuse me, that's a really, really big deal uh, for independent artists. Absolutely.
0: What I don't understand is, does TikTok, through SoundOn, will they also distribute out to all of the other... Uh, throughout the world, it doesn't really cover that necessarily. You, you've you've looked into it a little closer than I have. But yeah,
1: they what they've said in this this article is that it distributes to other platforms, and it doesn't say yeah. globally, but I'm assuming that it does because it says other platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, and even Instagram. So I'm assuming that's globally. It doesn't really go into the the detail here, um, but. Maybe we need. They have a link here to the FAQ. We'll have to take a look at that uh, too. But this is an interesting thing because the distributors have been striking deals with TikTok, and we all know the power of TikTok to break artists. But this is, I think, a little bit more of a, a lean in for for independent artists that maybe mm-hmm. don't have uh, that uh, that powerful distributor to get them there. Um, or maybe they do, but they want something direct where it's, uh, you know, they're not giving up their rights to to their music. I think it's it's pretty interesting and it's something that people have been hinting about um, mm-hmm. for a while. Like, what happens if TikTok gets into this play? A lot of us thought that YouTube um, would go down this road, you know, yeah. when Lear Cohen uh, went over there. Um but uh, this is super fascinating uh, development uh, for TikTok.
0: Yeah, the launch of SoundOn follows TikTok's deal struck with independent artist and distribution platform United Masters back in August of 2020 that saw full integration between both services directly through the TikTok app. So this, uh, as, as you mentioned, I think it allows TikTok users to distribute their music directly over to other manu- other streaming platforms from within the TikTok app. So it was United Masters apparently is sort of the, the background or the back end. Uh, platform that they're building upon. And like you said, you know, it's hard to argue with 100% revenue coming right back to you. So yeah, this is a definitely an opportunity for artists to uh, jump over and who knows what opportunities. And like we've talked about how important TikTok is to artist development these days. Boy, it's, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. And how many people yeah. say, let's, I just need a, a viral video to make this artist. <laughs> the line yeah. starts behind me for the, yeah, <laughs> looking exactly. for that viral video. I,
1: I always yeah. love it when when people say, you know, we're going to create a viral video. Um, but look, people are creating viral videos on TikTok all the time, whether it's intentional or not. And music has been such a big part of TikTok success. And the music business has benefited from TikTok. And it's just another really exciting way that developing artists can expose their music to new fans mm-hmm. and I'm all for it and it's not an exclusive thing and I think that's the most important takeaway for me is this isn't saying that like you can only put this through TikTok exclusively heck they're going to help you distribute it to Spotify yeah. and Apple Music
0: Right, 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 right. Why not? Right. Absolutely, why not? So we will keep paying attention to that, and uh, what I'm sure other uh, boardrooms of of competitors are looking at that and saying, "Well, how do we, how do we counteract this thing?" So, and we will report on that as well. So, let us. Uh, what do you say we close the book on episode number eighty three, J. It's been a yeah. lovely afternoon chatting with you uh and always th- we want to thank the music thank the music business association bandzoogle hype and bands in town we uh we certainly appreciate their participation yes in sir the show. without them we could not yeah. do it and uh please hit the subscribe button and send us your comments because we really appreciate it we get a lot of comments and it
1: they end up on we, the show often, we appreciate it
2: usually yeah. we love yeah
1: yeah check so, out our facebook group um it's all good we love the uh the conversation uh reach out to us anytime Absolutely. On that note, for
0: Jay Gilbert and myself, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with episode number 84 of the Your Morning Coffee podcast.
2: You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.